ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We welcome you to Gospel Dynamite, a Christian broadcast dedicated to the salvation of the lost and the revival of God's people. I'm Alan Mashburn, your Bible teacher and the pastor of Asbury Baptist Church, located at 218 Asbury Church Road in Seagrove, North Carolina. We invite you to visit our church at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. On Sunday evenings, we provide online services which can be viewed on gospeldynamite.org. Now please join me in the study of the Word of God. You're listening to Gospel Dynamite. Thank you for joining us. I ask that you take your Bible, turn with us to Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Today we look at the church of Thyatira, the church that compromised with the world. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed. And them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. But that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The city of Thyatira was the smallest of the seven cities mentioned in the letters to the churches. It is also the city about which the least is known. Yet it is this little-known church in a little-known city that Christ addresses his longest letter. While not a lot is known about ancient Thyatira, some things are known, and they are worthy of mention. Thyatira was probably founded by Alexander the Great some 300 years before Christ. The name Thyatira actually means unceasing sacrifice. Some believe that it received this name because it was a military buffer city. 
It was located some 40 miles southeast of Pergamos, the capital city of that province. When enemies invaded, they would naturally come to Thyatira first. While its location did not allow it to defend itself very well, its mission was to hold the enemy just long enough for Pergamos to prepare itself for battle. As a result, Thyatira was destroyed and rebuilt many times during its history. Again, Thyatira is also known for its trade guilds. These were like the ancient unions of the day, workers from the various industries of the city, bakers, wool workers, dyers, bronze workers, etc. They all banded together, they set prices, they guaranteed work. Now to refuse to join a guild was to give up all prospects of work. And that little known fact will become important as we move through the verses. Now Thyatira was also a center of occult worship. There was a temple in the city dedicated to fortune-telling, and it was presided over by a female oracle named Sambath. It was the church operating in this city that Jesus sends this letter. Now, we do not know who founded this church. It's possible that the gospel was brought to Thyatira by Lydia, who was saved in Philippi. We find that in Acts chapter 16, verses 12 through 15. Or as some think, it might have been evangelized by believers from Ephesus. There's one thing we know for sure. While the church in Thyatira might have been founded by a woman, it was certainly being confounded by a woman. There were serious problems in the church of Thyatira, and the Lord comes with a word tailored just for them and their need. He comes to the church in verse 18, and he presents himself in three distinct ways. He comes as the saving one the Son of God. He reminds these people that he is the Savior and that he alone is worthy of worship. Secondly, he comes as the searching one. Bible says, eyes like unto flame of fire. He comes as one who sees all. He sees the works of the hands and the motives and thoughts of the heart. He comes seeing all. He comes not as the meek and lowly Christ, but with his eyes ablaze with anger over sin. Thirdly, he comes as the sovereign one. Bible says feet like fine brass. Brass or bronze in the Bible is symbolic of judgment. Jesus not only comes as one who is able to see all, he also comes as one able to judge all. And if there's one word that describes the situation we find in Thyatira, it is the word compromise. This is a church that has left its founding principles and has gone off into compromise and apostasy. Now remember these letters can be viewed in three different ways. Practically, they are literal letters to real churches with real issues. Prophetically, they speak to the church in different periods of history. The church of Thyatira speaks of the period between 600 AD and 1500 AD, the time known as the Dark Ages. Many practices here are similar to Roman Catholicism. It can also be viewed personally. These letters have a message for every church, every believer who will hear and will heed. And a church just like every one of these seven churches can still be found in the world today. Folks, there's a word here for us if we will receive it. Now notice with me in verse 19, he commends the service of the church. 
This was an active church, and they were working within their own number and within the community around them. Their ministry is noted by the Lord Jesus himself by the words that he uses. He denotes that they were busy. He uses the word works. The word means deeds. It speaks of them as being active in good deeds and benevolent in their outreach. Their burden, the word service he uses, the word actually means ministry. It's the same word translated deacon throughout the New Testament. And the word carries the idea of those who kick up dust. In other words, they were so busy that they kicked up a cloud of dust as they went from task to task. He commends their motives. What's behind these works? What motivated them to do the things that they were doing? Well, they were motivated by their charity, love. This is the word agape. It refers to an unconditional, unceasing love that knows no boundaries and is not influenced by the worth of the object being loved. It's God's kind of love. Now, let's face it. The only real motive for good works is love. Everything we do is to be done out of a heart of love, or it is worthless, according to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. And a love that won't act is not genuine love at all, according to 1 John 3 and verse 18. It's good that this church had love, but we're not told what they loved. Did their works arise out of genuine love for Christ, or did they simply love their fellow man? As the verses unfold, I think you will see that their love was centered on man, not on God. Now, godly works always arise out of a heart of flame with love for God, God Almighty. That was Paul's motive that he denoted in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. And I might add, it must be ours as well. They were motivated by their consecration. The word faith is used. That word refers to faithfulness here. These were folks that could be counted on to get the job done. They were faithful. They were not fickle. Too many times there's work to be done around the church and no one wants to do the work. That was not a problem in Thyatira. There was work to do, plenty of people willing to do the work, and that's a good situation. He also commends their maturity, works and the last to be more than the first. Now, when I say maturity, I'm not talking about spiritual growth. I'm talking about growth in the level of their works. They were developing and progressing on their works. Their outreach and ministry to their fellow man was ever on the increase. And what Jesus says about the church in Thyatira should be true of our churches here as well. We should be a church that is busy for the glory of God, and we should be active in the Lord's work, but we should see that everything we do is motivated by either edifying the saints, evangelizing the sinner, and or exalting the Savior. Those three tasks comprise the whole of our business, and we should be actively engaged in them for the glory of God. I just want to remind you that God knows our works as well. He did not save us to be lazy believers, but to be busy in his kingdom work. According to Ephesians 2.10, we're created in Christ Jesus unto good works. There's not room for laziness and slothfulness in God's business.
Now, I would call to your attention here in verses 20 through 23, he confronts the sin in the church. Now, while the church appeared to be everything a church ought to be on the surface, at its heart, there was a festering sore. The church at Thyatira looked good on the outside, but it was corrupt at its core. Jesus comes, he confronts their sin, verses 20 through 23. He confronts the teacher of this church. The church in Thyatira was being led away from the Lord by the teaching of an influential woman in their congregation. And Jesus exposes her, exposes her teachings and her judgment in these verses. This woman is called Jezebel. She's called by the name of one of the most infamous women in the entire Bible. A little background on the biblical Jezebel will help us to understand what this woman was doing in this church. Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab, who was a wicked king, and her name means chaste, but she was anything but that. She was the wicked daughter of a Gentile king, and she was a devoted worshiper of the god Baal. And she kept up some 850 prophets of that wicked, sensual religion, according to 1 Kings 18 and verse 19. Baal was a fertility god, and his prophets and priests were no more than temple prostitutes. Baal was worshipped through vile sexual acts and gross wickedness. When Jezebel came to Israel, she brought her perverted religion with her. She led her weak-kneed husband to follow her gods and thus influenced Israel to seek Baal instead of Jehovah. She even did her best to kill every true man of God she could that she could even get her hands on. She threatened to kill old Elijah one time, and he ran away in fear. You might remember the story of Ahab and his desire for Naboth's vineyard in 1 Kings 21. It was Jezebel that arranged for the murder of Naboth so that Ahab could have the vineyard. And this act prompted Elijah to pronounce God's sentence upon Ahab and Jezebel. And he told Ahab that Jezebel would be eaten by the dogs. This was literally fulfilled years later when Jehu commanded Jezebel's servants to throw her down from a second floor window. They did, and Jehu drove his chariot over her body. He went into the house, had a meal, and commanded the servants to bury her. When they went out to retrieve her body, all that was left was her skull, her feet, and the palms of her hands. The dogs had eaten up the rest. And you can read that story in 2 Kings 9. Jezebel came to be identified with wickedness and idol worship. Now, verse 20, her sin is described here of this lady. This self-appointed prophetess, whoever she was, was guilty of leading the, pro the people of God away from the true worship of the Lord. No one is quite sure what exactly was going on, but here's my theory. Remember when I mentioned that the trade guilds earlier, these guilds would often have meetings in the pagan temples around town. Now such meetings were often immoral affairs involving drunkenness, drug abuse, and sexual immorality. And these meetings would also involve a meal and would either begin or end with a sacrifice to a pagan god. When an animal was sacrificed in a pagan temple, Often only a small portion was actually sacrificed. Sometimes just some hair clipped from the head of the animal might be all that was used. The rest of the animal was then divided between the pagan priest and the worshiper. And that worshiper could either sell his portion of the meat in the marketplace or he could throw a feast for his friends and they would eat the sacrifice. 
When the pagans in Thyatira were saved, they were faced with a problem. Did they refuse to join the guilds and be unemployed, or did they participate in the pagan rituals and compromise their testimonies? The mind of God in this matter is found in Acts chapter 15 and verse 29, where the Bible says that ye abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Fare ye well. Well, those newly converted Gentiles are commanded to abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, among other things. Of course, for more information, you can read 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. The teaching at Thyatira may have been the same teaching that was rampant in that area. It may have been the idea that an individual could be saved by grace and indulge in the fleshly appetite for sin. Some people held the view that the soul and the flesh were not even connected. In other words, they taught that what a person did in their body had no effect at all on their spiritual life and vice versa. That teaching is addressed and countered in the epistle of 1 John. Now, this woman preacher may have been telling the people in this church that they could hold on to their pagan beliefs and practices and still serve the Lord, that uh, they could sin and still be saved, that one thing had nothing to do with the other. This may have been the tool that church was using to get the pagans of Thyatira to actually come to their church. They were compromising their standards to attract the world. Whatever she was doing, she was leading the people of God astray. And the word seduce means to lead out of the right path. She was leading them into immorality. The word fornication comes from the word pornea. We get the word pornography from it. It refers to any sexual sin. The word literally means to prostitute one's body to the lust of another. It can refer to sexual sin or it can be used as a metaphor for idol worship. Regardless of what they were doing, the Lord calls it the depths of Satan in verse 24. Friends, the same teaching abounds in the modern era. Everywhere, people who call themselves Christians claim that they can have a relationship with the Lord on the one hand and live lives of open sin on the other. Homosexuals, pornographers, drug abusers, drunkards, adherents to false religions, etc., all claim to be saved and still able to do as they please. Friends, listen to me. Somebody is a liar. Somebody's lying. The Lord told his people to separate from that kind of lifestyle in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17. He told us that his people received a new birth in John chapter 3 and verse 3, and that they became new creatures, new creations in Christ Jesus in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. The Bible tells us that anyone who lives a lifestyle of committed, continual, unrepentant sin is lost, 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. My friend, we have liberty as Christians, but our liberty is not a license to sin. Either God is lying or man is lying. Listen to me. You cannot hold hands with the world and be saved at the same time. Verse 21, her stubbornness is denounced. The Lord has given this woman and her followers time to turn from their sins, but they refuse to do so. 
Now his patience has run out, and she's slated for judgment. Listen to me. God is a patient, loving God. He gives lost sinners and wayward believers opportunity on top of opportunity to get right with him. And when they refuse, they can expect nothing less than judgment. Verses 22 and 23, her sentence is declared. Because of what she has done, she and all of her followers will now face God's wrath. By using the phrase, cast her into great tribulation. He's telling us that these people are not saved. But notice the grace in his judgment. He's still giving them space to repent. If they refuse, they will be judged according to their works. Salvation is always based on God's grace. Judgment comes based on man's works. Don't deceive yourself. Let us not deceive ourselves. People who will not bow to the Lord Jesus Christ, trust him for salvation and demonstrate that salvation through a changed, dedicated life are people who have never been saved according to the scriptures. They abide under the wrath of God, and they're going to be judged by him according to their works. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. If you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior, I want to invite you. Now is the time to come to God while you still have the chance. One day the patience of God will reach an end, and nothing will remain but death, judgment, and hell. By the way, did you notice the reference here to her children? In verse 23, the young people are the ones who suffer the most when there's compromise and hypocrisy in the church. They see the inconsistency and they turn their backs on God and stumble off blindly toward hell. Verse 20, our Lord confronts the tolerance of this church. Jesus expresses his displeasure with this church because they allowed this woman to be in a position of leadership and because they tolerated the lies she was teaching for truth. The word sufferest here means to tolerate, to permit, to allow. God is displeased that they would allow these things of this nature to go on. They were probably like many in our day. They might have said, well, I don't agree with it, but we shouldn't say anything because we might hurt their feelings. Some folks need their feelings hurt. When false doctrine is preached in the church, those who know the truth have a duty to stand up and do something about it. When we sit back and allow that kind of wickedness to go unchecked, we invite the anger and the judgment of God. Some churches pride themselves on their tolerance. I think God still expects his people to be different from the world around them. And when we do like Tyra did and compromise our standards to appeal to the world, we're turning our backs on truth. And if you turn your back on truth, you're turning your back on God. When we open the door and let the world come in, don't be surprised when you realize that the Lord has walked out. Verse 23, he confronts the testimony of this church. The Lord tells his church that he would use them as an example to teach other churches what happens when truth is compromised. The church at Thyatira had been established to bring the word of God to a pagan city. They had functioned well for a while. Then they had abandoned the right path. They're going to pay a heavy price for their sin. Listen to me, folks. Our Lord will not tolerate sin in the church when it's being allowed to flourish. 
First Peter chapter 4 and verse 17 reminds us that judgment must begin at the house of God. In other words, when there is sin in the camp, the Lord will deal with it. He will remove his presence. He will remove his power. He will remove his touch off this wayward congregation. And he will write Ichabod over the door and watch us dwindle away to nothing. That, my friend, is the price, the price of compromise. Now notice with me in verses 24 through 29. He comforts the saints in the church. Not everyone in Thyatira had walked away from the Lord. Even in that tolerant, compromising, sinful church, there was a faithful remnant. There always is. Verses 24 and 25, he comforts them concerning their duty. He tells them that all he expects from them is that they stay the course. He wants them to avoid being sucked into the vortex of evil that's swirling there in Thyatira. That is his will for us in these confusing days as well. He wants us to stay the course for the glory of God. Just because everyone around us is taking a new path doesn't mean that you have to. Certainly doesn't mean that we have to. We can stand our ground and be faithful unto death or when the rapture takes us out. We're told to stand, stand, stand. Verses 26 through 27, he comforts them concerning their destiny. The Lord Jesus promises them that if they will remain faithful, they will rule with him when he comes in his kingdom. He seems to be saying, you folks are powerless to change your situation now, but the day is coming that I'm going to put my power into your hands. You're going to reign with me, and your struggle for holiness will be worth it all in the end. Listen, if you're going to be holy and godly Christian in these days, you might as well get ready to be hated, misunderstood, and persecuted. Oh, listen to me. That's not the end of the matter. One day the king is coming. And when he does, he's going to let his faithful servants reign with him. We might be weak today. The worldly compromising churches might be the ones with all the people, all the power, and all the prestige. But when the king comes, those who have served him faithfully now will reign with him then. It'll be worth it all when that day comes. Verse 28, he comforts them concerning their deliverance. Jesus promises these faithful believers the morning star. There's much debate among scholars about what this is talking about here. Some people believe that he's promising them himself. After all, Jesus says, I am the bright and morning star. Some think this refers to Satan in Luke chapter 10 and verse 18, that Jesus will let the church see Satan gets what's coming to him someday. We'll see that according to Revelation 20 and verse 10. I think he's talking about the rapture of the church, the rapture of the believers. You see, when the night grows the darkest, the morning star or the planet Venus becomes visible. When that heavenly body appears, you know that daybreak is not far behind. And I think the Lord is telling these folks, just hold on for a little while longer. He seems to be saying it's mighty dark now, but there's a glimmer of hope in the heavens. Hang on, I'm coming to get you. Folks, that's the promise to us as well. This dark night we are in right now will not last forever. The Lord is coming, and the signs are visible all around. Symbolically, the morning star has appeared, and it signals the approach of a new day. He's coming, and we're going. So hang on, hang on, hang on just a little bit longer. If he's called you to come before him to deal with your sins, come to Christ. If he's impressed upon you to pray for his churches that hold the word of God against the rising tide of compromise, you come, will you obey his voice as he speaks to your heart today?
Thank you for listening to our broadcast today. We trust it's been a blessing. Trust you'll have a great week in the Lord. Log on to our website, gospeldynamite.org, and let us know if you've accepted Christ or this message has helped you. God bless you, and we trust you have a great day in the Lord.